0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. President-elect Joe Biden sworn in as our 46th president on the west front of the U.S. Capitol January 20th, the peaceful transfer of power outlined in our Constitution. But this year, we are seeing the highest level of security ever, with concerns following that violent demonstration that took place inside the U.S. Capitol, as well as a pandemic that is claiming more than 3,000 Americans a day in this new year collectively, resulting in an inauguration ceremony unlike any other. Jim Bendett is one of the nation's leading experts. He's the author of the best-selling book, Democracy's Big Day, The Inauguration of Our President. Our conversation, it's just ahead. But first, that moment four years ago, as our 45th president, Donald Trump, was officially sworn in. Today's ceremony,
1: however, has very special meaning. Because today, we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another or from one party to another. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C. and giving it back to you,
0: the people. That's from January 2017. And Jim Bendat, author of the inauguration book, What a Difference Four Years Makes.
1: That's for sure. When we when we heard Donald Trump four years ago, he also talked about American carnage. That was pretty much the theme of his of his inaugural address, and sure enough, on January the sixth, we got American Carnage at the Capitol.
0: I wonder if you can explain the pageantry and the symbolism in America's history of the inauguration in outgoing administration and the incoming administration.
1: Well the tradition is that we have a peaceful orderly transition of power. That's the tradition. So it's pretty historically stunning that Trump has made the decision to become the first president in 152 years to not attend the inauguration of his successor. We just don't see that. This is just the fourth time in history.
0: And of course, we know the politics behind that decision by the president. But what's the symbolism?
1: Well, the symbolism is one that really demonstrates to our country as well as to people around the world exactly how our country works that we have this democratic system where there is that peaceful transition as i mentioned and that's symbolic because it's not that way in so many other countries so other countries look at us oftentimes with amazement that we do things in such an orderly fashion
0: And often, the new president will pay tribute to his predecessor. We certainly saw that in 1977 after one of the closest elections in American history in which Jimmy Carter, the then former governor of Georgia, defeated President Gerald Ford in January of 1977. President Carter with these words. For myself and for our nation,
1: I want to thank my predecessor
0: for all he has done to heal our land and that from january 1977 jimmy carter paying tribute to his predecessor they had a contentious race in 1976 and yet over the years until his death gerald ford and president jimmy carter now in his mid 90s they had a good friendship
1: yes that was that was quite a tribute there at the 1977 inauguration, and we had a similar situation in 2001, right after the very contentious 2000 election that was decided by the Supreme Court in favor of George W. Bush over Al Gore. In his inaugural address, George W. Bush thanked Al Gore for the way in which he conducted himself and the way in which the election ended with grace.
0: Let me turn to your book, the inauguration book. Why did you write it? And what has surprised you the most in researching presidential inaugurations?
1: I'd always wanted to write a book. I'd written articles over the years, op-ed pieces, and so on. But I'd always wanted to write a book. And I only wanted to write one if I could come up with a with a unique idea and also have a unique pro- approach to it. And uh, sort of an odd situation in my case. I have a hobby in which I collect Sports programs. You know, you go to a game, you buy a program. Well, within my sports program collection, I had a couple of presidential inauguration programs. And then when I discovered eBay many years ago, one day I typed in the word inauguration, and all these old programs came up. So I decided to start bidding on them and buying them. And then once I read them, that's when I started learning a lot of history, a lot of vignettes, some of them very poignant, some of them actually very funny. And I realized nobody knows this stuff, and if I put that together, I think I've got my book. And I also decided to organize it in a unique way. There had been a few prior books on inauguration history, none since 1965, excuse me, none since 1971, actually. Um, They were chronological in nature. I decided instead to do it a different way because I thought that was a bit of a dry approach I decided to divide my book instead by the parts of the day, beginning with the early morning hours, when the new and the old presidents get together, then the procession to the Capitol, the ceremony, the parade, and the balls. I decided to divide it up by the parts of the day and then sprinkle in vignettes um, from from, from all through history within those different parts.
0: And, of course, the president refusing to meet the incoming president and vice president of the White House changes one of those traditions, as we talked about earlier, and coronavirus changing what we have typically seen along Pennsylvania Avenue and the balls in the evening. So what are you expecting on Wednesday, January 20th?
1: I'm expecting this inauguration to be unlike anything we've ever seen before because of the fact that there won't be any meeting at the White House. There won't be the procession. There won't be the balls, as you mentioned. There won't be a traditional parade. The only thing that's going to be familiar will be the taking of the oath and the inaugural address. Everything else is out the window.
0: There is some pageantry, pomp, and ceremony. And let's go through some of the past inaugurations in the 20th century. March 1933, the governor of New York being sworn in as President Franklin D. Roosevelt.
1: So first of all... Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance.
0: Jim Bendett, why is that speech among the most famous in presidential inaugural history?
1: In 1933, we were in the middle of the Great Depression. People were in food lines. People were out of work. It was an unimaginable time for so many people. And Franklin Roosevelt saw it upon himself to quell the fears of so many people, and hence the words, the most famous words from that inaugural address that we just heard, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself.
0: Prayer is often invoked in these inaugurations 20 years after FDR was sworn in. This from President Dwight D. Eisenhower.
1: Almighty God, as we stand here at this moment, my, associates in the, my future associates in the executive branch of government join me in beseeching that thou will make full and complete our dedication to the service of the people in this throng and their fellow citizens everywhere. Give us, we pray, the power to discern clearly right from wrong and allow all our words and actions to be governed thereby and by the laws of this land.
0: That prayer offered by President Dwight Eisenhower during his inauguration back in 1953 and the reference to God in presidential inaugurations. Jim Bendett, what's the history?
1: Well, perhaps you're referring to the use of the words, so help me God, at the end of the inaugural oath. We've come to expect now the Chief Justice to add those four words after reciting the oath, and then we hear the President also say, so help me God. But it's really a myth that that's always been the case. George Washington is said by some historians to have added those four words. But it's it's really not clear that that really happened, because no one at the time said that George Washington added the word, so help me God. In fact, the first time anyone ever suggested that Washington did so wasn't until 1854, 65 years later, when uh, the writer Washington Irving claimed that George Washington had done so in 1789. But Irving had been only six years old in 1789 when he attended the ceremony. He was very far away from the inaugural platform, and there were no loudspeakers of any kind. So it's a myth that it was added. We do know that Chester Arthur added the word, so help me God, in 1881. But the record is largely silent for most of the 19th century, and we even know that as as recently as 1929... Herbert Hoover did not add the words, so help me God, at the end of the oath. But in fact, beginning with Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1933, every president has said, so help me God.
0: And of course, John Kennedy succeeded Dwight Eisenhower. He was inaugurated in January 1961. Here's what he told the gathering onto the east front of the U.S. Capitol. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal
1: as well as change. For I have sworn before you and almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago.
0: And again, another example of the pageantry and the transfer of power in what was another closely contested presidential race in 1960 between then-Vice President Richard Nixon and the new president, John F. Kennedy. What can you tell us about that inauguration in 1961? What stands out?
1: Well, to me, it's my favorite inauguration, not only because it's the first one I remember when I was young, but also because of some of the peculiarities that took place that day. For example... Cardinal Cushing delivered an invocation that day, and as he was starting to speak, the podium started to catch fire. There's a famous picture of smoke coming from the lectern area with Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy looking on with looks of real concern, as a marshal quickly put it out turned out to be a short in the electrical system. We also had an amazing inaugural address that day. We just heard parts of it, certainly one of the most famous speeches in history. We had uh, Lyndon Johnson, when he took the vice presidential oath that day, he uh, botched some of the words of the vice presidential oath. You're supposed to say you accept the post without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Instead, Johnson just said, without any mental reservation, whatever. But my favorite part of that ceremony was the poet Robert Frost. He was the first poet to ever uh, recite a poem at a presidential inauguration. He was 86 years old at the time, and he had written a special poem for the occasion called Dedication. But weather turned out to be a big problem for Frost when he wanted to read his poem to the crowd. Uh, It had snowed the night before in Washington, but on inauguration morning, it was a very, very sunny day, and the sun was reflecting off of the fresh snow, creating a glare for frost. So he couldn't read the words that he had written. Uh, The new vice president, Lyndon Johnson, stood up and with his top hat attempted to create some shade for frost. But nothing worked. He couldn't read it. He couldn't read his words. And instead of that new poem that he had written for the occasion called Dedication, he instead recited an older poem called The Gift Outright, one which he knew by heart. And then to top it all off, Frost dedicated his poetry for the day to the new president, Mr. John Finley. Frost had mixed up John F. Kennedy, with a friend of his, a scholar from Harvard named John Finley. And so the way I like to tell that story is, Finley knew Frost. Finley may have been a friend of Frost, but Finley was no Jack Kennedy.
0: <laughs> and of course, all of this chronicled into the inauguration book with Jim Bendett. He's joining us, by the way, from Los Angeles. In 1981, the inaugural ceremonies moved from the East Front to the west front of the U.S. Capitol. I want to play a little bit of President Ronald Reagan's speech and then talk about the significance of that move.
1: As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever.
0: And, of course, later that day, the confirmation that those uh, 50-plus American hostages being held in Iran were freed, a ceremony that took place on the west front of the Capitol. Why?
1: The decision was made to move it to the west side so that more people could view the inauguration. For those who have been to Washington, you know that the east side of the Capitol is surrounded by uh, the uh, Library of Congress and the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's much more of a confined space space on the east side. Meanwhile, the west side of the Capitol, it's huge. You've got the whole National Mall out there. You've got the Washington Monument in the background and even the Lincoln Memorial beyond that. So many more people can now see the inauguration, except, of course, this year when we've got the pandemic and there won't be very many people at all.
0: So let's go through some presidential trivia from your book. What's the history of inaugural balls?
1: For George Washington's inauguration, the first one in 1789, there was no official inaugural ball, but they did have a ball about a week later. The first official inaugural ball took place 20 years later in 1809 with uh, James Madison and his party-giving wife, uh, Dolly Madison. That was the first official one, and they grew over the years. Some years there was only one, some years there were a few, and some years there were none at all. But the record number was 14 inaugural balls, with Bill Clinton's uh, second inauguration in 1997.
0: And of course, they sound glamorous, but in modern days, these balls, they're really not, are they?
1: No, the food isn't much. They're very crowded. You can't move around too much. Um, It's probably not worth it, but uh, those who've attended inaugural balls, they get excited when the new president and the first lady show up to dance for maybe a half a minute to a minute, not very long at all, but at least they get a glimpse of the president.
0: Why did Barack Obama have to take the oath of office twice?
1: Well, he actually took it twice for both of his inaugurations. In 2009, he was sworn in on January the 20th, and on that occasion, Chief Justice John Roberts totally butchered the inaugural oath. He made a lot of mistakes. He tried to do it by heart, and he clearly didn't remember the words. Sadly, uh, Barack Obama also repeated some of those same mistakes. Now, that made, he, he was president. He became president officially. But just out of an abundance of caution, they decided to have a redo the very next evening in the White House. So on January the 21st, 2009, Roberts came over to the White House, this time with notes in hand, and he administered the oath to Obama a second time. And then four years later, in 2013, uh, that year, Inauguration Day, January the 20th, fell on a Sunday. And our tradition is that uh, if it falls on a Sunday, there's just a private ceremony on the Sunday, and then the big public one on Monday. So uh, Barack Obama wound up being sworn in twice in in 2009 and two more times in 2013.
0: You also point out, and I didn't know this, that uh, one of our vice presidents uh, was inebriated at his inauguration. Who was it?
1: (laughs) That's true. Andrew Johnson was Abraham Lincoln's uh, vice president when he took office in 1865, and he was not feeling well. He was quite ill at the time, and somebody suggested to him that he drink some alcohol uh, to cure his ailments. Well, in those days... The vice president actually gave a, an inaugural address also. They don't do that anymore, not since 19, uh, 1933 was the last time that a vice president spoke at an inauguration, other than just taking the oath. But in 1865, when Andrew Johnson got up there, he was rip-roaring drunk. He, he was uh, slurring all of his words. Nobody could understand a word he was saying. It was pretty embarrassing to everybody who was there.
0: And you point out another president under the category, (laughs) the runs for the White House, was battling diarrhea.
1: Yes, James Buchanan in 1857 had that problem. Um, There was a disease going around Washington that they called the National Hotel Disease at the time because it had uh, emanated from, uh, from some hotel there in Washington. And sure enough, James Buchanan had diarrhea on his inauguration day and had a doctor by his side at all times. Now... That year, 1857, was also the first year that an inauguration was ever photographed. But fortunately, we should all take note for the fact that the only known photographs from that day are from the ceremony itself. Nothing too personal.
0: How much history do you think will be made during this inauguration? Certainly President Trump, his refusal... To, uh, to attend the ceremonies, which does set a precedent. And as you point out, other presidents in the past have done so, but not for a century and a half.
1: Well, that's that's history in itself, isn't it? It's going to be historic also because of the, the, the fact that it's just going to be a, a very solemn affair. It, there's not going to be a lot of normal partying that we're used to at inaugurations. It's going to be very businesslike. And I'm sure Biden will take it upon himself to do everything he can in his inaugural address to try to heal the wounds that we've had in our country and to try to bring our country together.
0: So give us the history of past presidents refusing to attend the ceremony of their successors.
1: The first one was John Adams in 1801. Now, that, that was a very peaceful In Washington, because after all, our first two presidents, George Washington and John Adams, were both Federalists, and now here comes the new president, Thomas Jefferson, from a different party called the Democratic Republicans. But it was a, it was a very peaceful transition. But John Adams made the decision not to attend; he felt that attending wasn't appropriate. Um, then the next time was was his was his son, John Quincy Adams who uh, really didn't want any part of Andrew Jackson and his followers. Um, this was, this was um, in 1829. He, John Quincy Adams considered Jackson and his rowdy band of followers to be sort of low-life characters. Uh, and sure enough, uh, maybe he was a little bit right in terms of what happened that the afternoon of, of Jackson's inauguration when with their muddy boots and dirty clothes. They trampled the White House during, a, during a, an afternoon party reception there. So he didn't want any part of those kinds of folks. And then the last one was, and the most recent one, was Andrew Johnson in 1869. He didn't attend the inauguration of Ulysses S. Grant. There was a lot of friction between those two for the entire campaign, and Neither one of them wanted to get into, into a carriage with the other one, and uh, Johnson just decided to stay back at the White House, and he signed a few bills for the last time as president while, while Grant was sworn
0: in. We're talking with Jim Bendett. He's a graduate of Northwestern University, earned his law degree from Loyola. The book is called Democracy's Big Day, and the website, by the way, is inaugurationbook.com. And I want to conclude with three instances in which the outgoing and incoming president, to say that they had a cool relationship, would be uh, an overstatement. Herbert Hoover and FDR in 1933, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan in 1981, and more recently, George W. Bush and Al Gore in 2001. And yet, you could argue that uh, the outgoing president kind of grinned and bared it.
1: Definitely. I mean, they, they've, all, they've all shown up at the inauguration. It might have been tough, but they still keep a smile on their face. They put the best foot forward. They present to the world um, the, the best side of democracy. That's what's been a beautiful thing to see for all these years, and we're not seeing it this year. Instead, what we've got is the situation where we, on January the 6th, we had a physical assault on democracy. And now what Donald Trump has chosen to do uh, this time is have an, a symbolic assault on democracy.
0: How does that make you feel personally and as a historian?
1: Well, it's just sad to see. It's, I mean, I, I, know, I know there are many Trump supporters who think it's great that Trump isn't going. And I know there are just as many Biden supporters who think it's great that Trump won't be there. But I don't look at it that way. I don't look at it that way. I don't think it's it's good for democracy. I think it's a lot better when the two sides are there
0: together. The book, Democracy's Big Day, the author Jim Bendett, joining us from Los Angeles. We thank you for being with us. Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me. The book is titled Democracy's Big Day, the Inauguration of Our President, author Jim Bendett. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.